Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Dennis is author of Triumph of the Lamb, The Message of Acts, Him We Proclaim, and most recently, he edited Heralds of the King, Christ-Centered Sermons in the Tradition of Edmund P. Clowney. All these titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, it's uh, it's very gracious of you to come and, and sit for yet another interview. Uh, I, we should confess that uh, we did one earlier, and um, and it disappeared. It was raptured. <laughs> Whoa, we don't, we don't wait know. a minute. I've got to rewrite Triumph of the Lamb then if that <laughs> happened. So I don't know what happened, but it's gone, and uh, life was full of guns and war, and anyway. So um, so we're thankful and grateful uh, to, uh, for De- to Dennis for his uh, patience with us. Well, Dennis, uh, obviously people listening, uh, someone listening, uh, knows you from you know, perhaps uh, conferences or audio or or one of uh, one of the several uh, titles that that I just mentioned, uh, but they may not know a lot about your background. Uh, you, you, know, you were not always reformed. Uh, tell us how how you were raised and and uh, and uh, and how you uh, uh, and how you matured in faith. Well, I was born into a Christian home, an evangelical Christian home. My parents. Uh, Love the Lord uh, and uh, raised me to understand the the Bible, the basics of the gospel, certainly, and the church that I was uh, raised in uh, preached the gospel, I believe. Uh, but it really wasn't until college that I came across uh, some of the distinctive understandings of Scripture that we would call reform, the sovereignty of God over all of history and the sovereignty of God in salvation in particular. And a lot of that came, I went to an evangelical Christian college in which reformed thought was reformed thought was in the minority, although it wasn't unheard of there. There were several professors that uh, the word on the street was that they were Calvinistic. <laughs> I think of uh, an English professor named Jan Kingma, who was uh, from the Netherlands originally uh-huh. and uh, just much beloved English professor, and uh, he was reformed in theology. Another English prof uh, at Erickson later on went to teach at Calvin College, uh-huh. and uh, not from a reformed background himself, but had come to more uh, reformed understandings. So there were professors, but I think the greatest influence on my life was a fellow student who mm-hmm. entered uh, the college with me at the same time, Greg Bonson, who went on to do a lot of writing and apologetics and and also writing in ethics, uh, adopting a a view of the application of Old Testament law called theonomy or Christian reconstruction. Um, Greg pushed me back to the Bible Mm -hmm. over and over again. Uh, We became uh, friends uh, one year, were uh, roommates in the dorm, and he just kept pushing me back to Scripture. You believe the Bible, don't you? We, all of us evangelicals knew that, of course, God couldn't really be that sovereign, that he would choose who gets to believe and not. That that has to be our decision. Uh, but Greg kept pushing me back to Scripture and saying, no, actually, look at what the Bible says. And, and that persuaded me on those issues that distinguish Reformed or Calvinistic understanding of salvation from an Arminian view, for example. And uh, that was a, a decisive turning point for me, uh, those, those years. Um, 
when you confronted those ideas, uh, how was that? I mean, personally, existentially, when you when you first heard them and you were forced to think about them and and to look at scripture afresh in the light of of the claims that you were hearing, uh, was that an easy thing, or or and did it go quickly, or or how was that for you? I think it was less painful for me than it has been for some others. Um, I I had not been taught up to that point against Calvinism. It, it, I didn't have a, necessarily a negative image of it, uh, although it just seemed strange to me. And I was a little suspect of it, actually. And I remember uh, at some college break going back to my home congregation in the Los Angeles area and uh, having a, a meeting with uh, my pastor there in this evangelical church and sort of trying out some of these ideas on him. Uh, he had gone to Fuller Seminary and then went on to Princeton Seminary and uh, later went on to pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA, a solid, theologically solid guy. And I tried some of these ideas. I didn't know that he was reformed. <laughs> um, but I tried, I had high respect for him, uh, not only as a, as a preacher and as a thoughtful um, I don't know if I would have said theologian at that point, but his sermons really had meat. They had substance to them. Uh, and for him as a person, uh, for his uh, gentleness and kindness and integrity and compassion for people. Uh, and I was, I was beginning to see, this is really taught in the Bible, but I also was beginning to wonder, does this mean you, make you a kind of an arrogant, hard-to-get-along kind of person? Hmm. And when he said, well, about these ideas that have been explained to me and that I was beginning to see in Scripture, he said, well, that's clearly what the Bible teaches. For me, that was a helpful thing hmm. to have a man that I respected for his character and his compassion as well as for his intelligence and biblical fidelity say, this is what I believe, it's what I see in Scripture. And he was modeling for you the he, fact that you, that you didn't have to be, uh, if you embrace these ideas, you didn't have to be an abrasive jerk. He, exactly. He, he's a gracious guy and and warm. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. It, it's interesting as you were uh, since we originally did this interview. I've done several others, and and in one of them, uh, Bob Godfrey, our president and professor of church history, commented on the way evangelicalism has changed. And as you're describing your movement from say broader evangelicalism to reformed convictions, it doesn't sound like the bridge was really. Uh, very far than in many ways the f a foundation had been laid that enabled you to see what you were hearing. I think that's true. I think that's true. I was taught, I believe, a very high view of Scripture. Uh, I, you know, it's hard to reconstruct at the distance of, yay, so many decades. But uh, <laughs> We won't stipulate how I, many. I, I do think that I came into college with the conviction that if my ideas ran afoul of what the Bible clearly taught, then it was my ideas that needed fixing, uh, that I needed to really submit my thought uh, to to Christ and as he speaks in the written word. Yeah, was, when you went off to seminary then, uh, you went to Philadelphia, and uh, how did seminary change you, affect you, and prepare you for what you went on to do? Well, the first thing I think that, that uh, I went to Westminster um, in part because uh, my friend Greg Bonson uh, who had a wonderful plan for my life, <laughs> knew that now that I was beginning to see God's sovereignty in all of salvation, that I needed to um, I needed to go to Westminster. And I said, no, I'm going to be an English professor. 
And he mm-hmm. said, no, no, you need to go to Westminster. And I said, no. And he said, well, why don't we drive out and take a look at Westminster over, say, spring break, which he and I and a third fellow did. Road uh, trip. Road trip. Uh, junior year blast. Oh, uh, my. Not to the beaches of Florida or someplace wacky like that, but to Philadelphia to sit in seminary classes. And uh, that trip convinced me that I wanted to be at Westminster for maybe a year. I was beginning to see presuppositional apologetics. Uh, Francis Schaeffer had spoken at our college a couple times, and Mm. Schaeffer was not in every respect on the same page with his teacher, Cornelius Van Til, but I was hearing him, him some things that attracted me and... Uh, so I wanted to be an English professor who had his head on straight in terms of a biblical worldview. And uh, that was initially what I went to Philadelphia thinking I was going to do. Although I had thought about pastoral ministry, hmm. um, I would say as young as junior high age, before, before college. Um, but by the end of college, I was thinking English lit, it's a nice, comfortable kind of pastoral life but without the pastoring you know it's just (laughs) living out among the sheep someplace Uh, yeah what changed for me um was partly seeing uh the high calling of the ministry of the word pastoral Mm -hmm. ministry and i would say partly seeing also uh and really being gripped by the the recognition that the whole scripture is really God's witness to his redemptive work in Christ, that everything that God was doing in the Old Testament and certainly everything he says in the Old Testament ultimately is deriving the hope of his ancient people forward to Jesus, and uh, and therefore it all speaks to us of Christ. So I I went to Westminster, a Calvinist as, so, as to soteriology, uh, but it was really there at Westminster that I began to see the real unity of Scripture, uh, the covenantal, redemptive, historical unity of Scripture in, uh, in its focus on the person and the work of Christ. So your, your literary interests and background uh, actually help prepare you to read Scripture Oh, I definitely in, think in a Christ-centered so. way. Oh, yes, and it's yes. reflected in your your later work too that you, you brought a certain literary sensibility to the reading of, of Scripture. Oh yeah, I, I definitely believe that that's so. That uh, learning to read literature carefully and to see not only what it's saying but how it's saying it uh, has helped me uh, in in learning how Scripture, how God delivers His message in Scripture. After seminary, you went into the pastorate. I did. That was a little bit of a surprise. By the middle of my senior year, I was tired of study <laughs> and. And yet, at the same time, apprehensive about pastoral ministry, thinking perhaps about New Testament studies now. English lit was something I would always be interested in, but not something I was going to devote my life to. Uh, actually applying to doctoral programs in mm. New Testament. And uh, somewhat out of the blue in the middle of my senior year, I got a call, a phone call from an elder in a church that I'd, I'd filled the pulpit for a couple, maybe three, four times in the previous six to eight months as they had their pastor had just been called elsewhere and I was just available for pulpit supply. And uh, he said, well, we had a congregational meeting last Sunday. We voted to call you as our new pastor. 
And I sort of paused. <laughs> yes. And I thought, now I'm pretty new. I was in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I said, I'm pretty new to how things work in Presbyterian circles. But this isn't the order of things I'm used to. I, I, I thought there was sort of, sort of a candidating process or something where we all knew that you were thinking about me. And, and I knew you were thinking about me. And uh, they just had a sense that God prepared me to be their pastor in North Jersey, Fairlawn, New Jersey. Hmm. And um, so I had, my wife and I had some praying to do, sure. some processing. Uh, I talked with uh, some Westminster professors, uh, with Dr. Bob Strimple, who would later become our first president out here. And he said, I, I, I want you to think about someday being a teacher. Hmm. He says, I think you'll be a better teacher if you've actually done pastoral work and, uh, I think you have those gifts and that calling. So he encouraged me, and uh, even a man w- under whom I had done a pastoral internship uh, who had previously pastored the church in New Jersey encouraged me to accept that call. So somewhat surprisingly to Jane and me, um, we ended up in Fairlawn, New Jersey, mm. and uh, several years there, and then um, I was called to a church back home Los Angeles is my uh, where I was born and raised uh, area the Los Angeles area and uh, called to another Orthodox Presbyterian Church there and had a wonderful five and a half years of ministry there before Westminster California began to start up and I was contacted about possibly joining our faculty out here and you're one of the earlier faculty members uh, uh, on this campus I am yes um my appointment was actually approved by the Westminster Philadelphia faculty and board, I think just before we started classes, but mm-hmm. I actually it was with a view toward my joining our faculty in the second year of classes. So I started in the, basically in the spring of 82. Mm-hmm. And uh, of our current active faculty, Dr. Godfrey, who came in the fall of 81, is the only one who's uh, been around here longer than I Dennis is our institutional memory. So when we want to know, how how did we do that? Uh, Dennis knows, or Or, at least he used to know. (laughs) Or at least Dennis knows that he once knew, and that's part of the plight of our institutional memory. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, and and so uh, you've had... um, phases in your life, as we all do, stages in your life, and and much of your life has been spent teaching here at Westminster Seminary, California, most of the last 30 years, training uh, mostly men for pastoral ministry, and then about 30% of our students to to fulfill other vocations. Um, I know this is a broad question, but how has it been? And and what if you, if you had to tell someone what's the one thing that you've come to really love about teaching here, what would you say? It's been good. Sometimes it's been very hard. Uh, for 16 years, as you know, Scott, I taught New Testament courses. Mm. And then in 97, uh, the a search committee and the faculty asked, invited me to switch over into practical theology. And I've told my wife that was my midlife crisis. I'm not, <laughs> not changing wife, not changing j- even workplace, but changing job significantly. And that was a an interesting ramp up to uh, think more about preaching and Christian education and so on. Uh, Dr. Ed Clowney, uh, you mentioned the book uh, of collected sermons from my brothers in the ministry that uh, who learned Christ-centered preaching from Ed. Uh, he was on our search committee and he encouraged me uh, to uh, 
smuggle all of my New Testament stuff into PT courses, practical theology courses, any way I could find. And I've kept, I, I've followed his advice to the best I can. And so. his example as well. I mean, it's not well, like. Well, that's true. That's definitely <laughs> not like true. Ed didn't Rich just, biblical theology exactly. in all of its courses. So it's been a challenge. Um, but it's been a real delight, and a real joy. And I would say um, the ministry of the Word and wor- worship course, the opening course, uh, which is what I've been privileged to teach since 97, is one of the high points when students are coming in and I get to introduce them to a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Some of them, of course, come having heard Christ preached week by week from the pulpit or having studied from others who see that unity of scripture in their college work but some it's new and uh, some are dragged a little kicking and screaming to see that that really is in all of scripture that you can teach and preach christ even from old testament texts that don't don't name him by name or that are not quoted in the new testament but but there's the pattern that's always leading them to christ so that's that's a thrill uh, to get to introduce them to that and uh of course, the last several years I've been also working as academic dean, so I haven't gotten to do as much teaching in our sermon practicum courses, hearing students as they're wrestling with how to do that. Now that I've left the dean's office as of uh, uh, July 1, uh, 2009, I'm looking forward to get back in, getting back into teaching preaching practica again and hearing how students wrestle with that. I think the other thrill is to see graduates after they're out and after they're in ministry and just to see God's fruit in their ministry to hear whether it's pastors preaching in pulpits here in the U.S. or whether it's uh, those involved in uh, cross-cultural missions in other countries just to see that what they've learned here not just from me but from all of us and the unity that we have as a faculty wanting to present the unity of scripture and uh, the person of Christ and the fullness of the gospel that to see that bear fruit in their ministry is, I, I would say, probably one of the greatest thrills for me. Some uh, people uh, would look at the way we tend to read Scripture, in, you know, in a Christ-centered sort of way, and they they might suggest that it's artificial. Uh, how would you respond to people who say, "Well, yes, Jesus is in the Bible, but the Bible isn't really all about Christ." How do you respond to that, and why is it so important to uh, to train ministers to preach Christ from all of Scripture? How many hours do we have for this answer? <laughs> well, we can edit, so <laughs> okay. you, you just go, and we'll we'll fix it. <laughs> well, I would say, uh, you know, I would take them to some texts of Scripture. I would take them to Luke twenty-four, the account of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, to the two on the road to Emmaus, and to the larger group and just point out that Jesus takes every portion of the Old Testament, um, the Law and the Prophets, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Law of the Prophets, and then the Psalms represents that third category of the canon in the Hebrew way of looking at the Old Testament scriptures, and says that it's all about him. And then I would probably take them to examples of the way the apostles and the other inspired New Testament writers uh, point us to Scripture, uh, to Old Testament Scripture, and show how Christ fulfills uh, Old Testament Scripture, that Christ is the second Adam, the last Adam, that uh, where Adam failed, Christ has perfectly obeyed, uh, and therefore, as we all die in Adam, so all who are in Christ are 
made alive and will be made alive in his resurrection forever. Um, I would talk about the covenant structure of the Bible, uh, that God always relates to his human creatures in a covenant in which he comes as Lord and he calls us as servants to obey. Uh, and then, of course, when Adam disobeyed, we have a, a new arrangement promised as early as Genesis 3.15 that uh, there will still be an obedient human. The mm. seed of the woman will come and will defeat uh, the serpent uh, where Adam failed. And that that promise of a, of a faithful covenant servant who is descended from Eve and who will win the victory for us is just elaborated throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and so we know that the New Testament writings are written to particular needs and particular congregations. Uh, and yet in those writings that are designed by God's sovereign providence, he's giving us a, a way of reading the whole scripture, the ancient scriptures and seeing how every strand, uh, whether the work of the prophets or the priests or the kings, uh, sometimes in their relative faithfulness, mm -hmm. often in their terrible unfaithfulness, are all pointing ahead to the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Mm. Uh, it would be those kinds of things that uh, we could talk about together. And I, I would hope that they could come to see, uh, as we really want to learn not only what to preach from the apostles, but how to read scripture from the apostles, that, uh, that they're really teaching us a way of seeing the whole scripture as united in Jesus. As you're directly, and we were, we're, all of us here are training future pastors in one way or another, uh, but as you, know, you and uh, Julius and others have a, an opportunity to work with students uh, directly on their preaching, uh, to, to take the, their biblical study and to, to shape that into the, the form of a sermon. Uh, as you do that, and as you then get to shape them as they, and they learn for the first time to stand in a pulpit and, and to address a congregation and, and begin to expound a text of Scripture, wh what's your goal for them? Uh, I mean, I think, I think I know the answer, but talk a little bit about what you hope for them as they, as they go through the process, as they graduate, and then as they leave? That's a great question. Well, I want them, subjectively, I want them to go from this place with an even greater confidence in the power of the gospel to change people's lives. Uh, the power of calling people uh, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in Jesus, in his perfect obedience and his sacrifice and his resurrection. That, that not only as we rest in him are we reconciled to God and acceptable, uh, pleasing to him for Jesus' sake, uh, but in that whole process, uh, you know, that's all justification, but that then... Uh, justification leads to a life of sanctification and that sanctification of being transformed into the image of Christ is really a life of obedient gratitude or grateful obedience uh, and uh, I, you know I, I know that people have sometimes heard an emphasis on Christ-centered preaching as being against application or against calling people to respond I think that's that's a mistake if if it's ever that, then it's not fully apostolic, Christ-centered preaching. Hmm. But the response that we make is a response that comes as a result of what Christ has done for us. And it is 
response that we're called to make in gratitude, uh, in confidence that the Holy Spirit will transform us more and more into the image of Christ. Our relation to God is settled once for all by what Jesus has done for us in his perfect obedience and his sacrifice and resurrection. Um, And then living out our gratitude for that obedience is is a lifelong process which the Holy Spirit is very active in so that's what I want them to come away with in terms of preaching a whole gospel the gospel and then the fruit that flows from Mm -hmm. faith in the gospel Uh, I want them to do it in a way that shows love and compassion for the people I want them to do it in a way that's clear Mm -hmm. for people to understand not only for ancient saints I'm almost an ancient saint now. <laughs> but there are others that I still look at and say, I want to grow up to be like them when I grow up. Yeah. You know? But for new believers, uh, new adult believers who have been converted out of a background where they really haven't been exposed, for young children, our covenant children. So I want them to be able to take the theology that we're teaching here, uh, including the terminology that we teach here, but then to be able to translate the terms in ways that are not only clear, but also show the vividness of the biblical truths that we're dealing with as we introduce people to the greatness of God and to the depth of our sin and then to the wonder of God's redemption in Christ. As you're laying this out, you know, because I'm here and we agree you know, so much on, on, on what you're saying, it's hard for me on one level to imagine anyone listening to that and saying, well, I don't believe that. But clearly there are people out there who don't believe what you just said, who would say, well, no, that's, that's not really what is going on. What, can you imagine, and you, and you don't have to think hard, you just have to think about some of the students that, that come in from a different background who've never heard this before. Why would anyone struggle with what you just said? Well, I, I don't know if I hear it so much from students who have come here. I mean, some would come saying this is new and foreign and I don't think I agree with it but at least from what I'm aware of what's going on in the church outside um, some would say that's too theoretical that's too theological that's not practical what people need is coaching Hmm. on how to reconcile their problems in everyday life or they would say it's too individualistic and not concerned enough about the needs in society more generally. Um, And I do believe that when the gospel really gets a hold of us, it does make us concerned not only about our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, but it should make us concerned to show his grace in our lives in the way we relate to neighbors who don't know the Lord as well and in our compassion for the suffering and the poor as well. So I know that that can sound individualistic and if we only preach response that's very private and individualistic then I think we're not doing justice as well. Um, But I know that there are some who are so aware of the very obvious issues of injustice, violence, poverty and want and disease in the world that when they hear a message that focuses on the issue of our alienation from God and how that can be dealt with and can only be dealt with by God's intervention in Christ they feel that's not relevant Hmm. to the the world in which we live and I would say it's the only relevant thing yeah and 
could we say that it's the distinction between getting at these things directly versus indirectly? It's not that you're not concerned about these things. It's not that you don't want preachers to deal with these things. But the question is how, where, when, and, and where do we begin? Uh, would you say that you know we can get good social theory from a lot of places, but but the one thing that a, a, a Christian minister has, the one word that he has that people can't get anywhere else is is that message that you were you were just summarizing that God the Son was promised from all uh, you know all through redemptive history entered into history did what we wouldn't and couldn't do uh, was raised for our, our justification and, and that's got to be the beginning of all those other things that that you were that you were saying I agree I think that's exactly right how do we convince people, do you think, to, to be patient enough to begin with Christ and to trust God for the outcome, all of those desirable outcomes that they want? Well, I think one of the, one of the keys is to call people to recognize something that, uh, that a point that was made uh, really in the 16th century by the Reformers, and that is if we do all sorts of good deeds— um, that formally, as to action, are pleasing to God and, and show love to my neighbor, but I'm not doing it out of a response of grace to the gospel, then in a certain sense, I'm actually not loving my neighbor yet. I'm using my neighbor. Mm. And I'm not loving God yet. I'm trying to strike a deal with God. Mm. And... Um, I think some of those early reformers were exactly right, that the only way you will actually begin to do some good, and it will always be flawed, but to do mm. some good that you're actually acting out of love for God and love for neighbor is if the issue of your relationship to God has been settled once for all by the work of Christ. And then you're free to love because you're not trying to rack up points with God by being kind to your neighbor. You're actually loving out of a response of assurance in the gospel. And that will last a lifetime. That will, should, motivate us for a whole lifetime mm -hmm. to be involved in costly love for neighbors who may or may not be grateful for it. But we can do it because we're showing God that we love him because he first loved us in Christ. Well, uh, this, this is the sort of thing that you can find in uh, Heralds of the King, Christ-Centered Sermons in the Tradition of Edmund P. Clowney. You can also see this in Dennis's work on the book of Acts and uh, in his uh, uh, book on the commentary, wonderful commentary, uh, both on the book of Acts and also on the, uh, on the Revelation. If you're looking for a good, clear, accessible, uh, true commentary, the true commentary on on the revelation and a, a brief you can find the uh, you can find that there and you can get it through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary California wscal.edu/bookstore well as always Dennis this has been delightful thank you for your time and, and thank you uh, f uh, for so much of what you said that was so edifying and that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888 480 
888-488-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.